This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. Calling is a funny thing. One moment a fellow is happily serving an Orthodox Presbyterian congregation in Wheaton, and the next thing he knows, he's been called to become a seminary professor in Escondido, California, to help prepare pastors. Reverend Dr. Craig Troxell knows all about this process since he's in the midst of it as we speak here today. He's joining the faculty full-time here at Westminster Seminary, California, and he comes to us with more than 24 years of pastoral experience. On top of that, Craig was born and raised in Nebraska. Go Big Red. And those two facts alone make him a blessing to the seminary. Not only is he an experienced pastor, but he's taught seminary courses in Philadelphia and in the Chicagoland area as well, and also for the Ministerial Training Institute for the OPC. He's published numerous journal articles, including one that I found particularly helpful, which was an explanation of what the Westminster Confession means by the phrase general equity. He's author of What is Man, published in 2010 by PNR, and he has books forthcoming from Crossway and PNR Publishing. And we'll get together in future episodes and talk about those books here on Office Hours. Craig is married to Carol, and he's blessed with five children and one grandchild. Hi, Craig. Welcome to Escondido. Welcome to Office Hours. Thank you. It's good to be here. It's been a while since we've done a Meet the Faculty episode, so we're excited to have you here and uh, get to know you a little bit, let the listener get to know you a little bit. So, first of all, most important things first, where in Nebraska were you born? I was born in Kearney. In Kearney? And where did you grow up? Uh, a little bit all over. In elementary years, uh, near Papillion, oh, okay. outside so of Omaha. Yeah, I lived on the East End and Central. Yeah, and then I went to high school in a town I'm sure you know well, Maywood, <laughs> which nobody's... Everybody knows Maywood. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, 30 miles south of North Platte, 30 miles north of McCook. Okay, so not too far from the Sand Hills. No, no, a little bit south of there. Right? Okay, so that's beautiful country out there. Yeah, it's it's good country. If the listener has driven I eighty, well, that is Nebraska, but that's not all of Nebraska. I plead with people, please, if you just go a little bit south and take one of the federal highways parallel, or just a little bit north, you take Highway six or Highway two or Highway twenty, and it's a completely different state. Yeah, totally different. So I. 80 is in a river valley, follows the Platte River, and, and uh, not very exciting, but it's beautiful where you are. So yeah. you grew up doing some interesting things out there. Yeah, uh, most of my classmates, all but one, actually were all in farms. So we got involved in branding, uh, did a lot of farming chores, got my farm husbandry license when I was 14 years old. Uh, so worked for farmers. My brother and I followed the wheat harvest. Oh, so you're custom cutters. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Started know about that, just yeah. north of Texas. I went all the way to Montana. So cut a lot of wheat. Yeah. And saw a lot of the country. Yeah. Well, um, I know the custom cutters well. I've spent a lot of time in southwestern Kansas and uh, grandpa was a wheat farmer. So okay. yeah, we know you guys. We kept an eye on you guys. You <laughs> 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 came rolling through town. Uh, and you've spent some time on a horse and spent time on ranches. And yep. so you're an honest to goodness Nebraskan. Well, we're glad you're here 
And um, it's always good to have another Nebraskan here on uh, campus and, and in Escondido. Somebody who knows what a runza is. Yes. <laughs> in case the listener doesn't know, we'll clue you in. It's a probably Czech or German-Russian meal, sort of uh, not a sandwich exactly. It's a doughy thing, and in the middle of the dough is beef and cabbage and stuff. So it's good. Okay, have you tried In-N-Out yet? Oh, yes. And if I put before you a runza burger or an In-N-Out, which would Ooh, you choose? Oh, that's not even fair. <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff. Are you, are you going to decide or you're going to be diplomatic? I think I need to meditate on it. Okay. <laughs> He's going to have to choose it. I'm a Runza guy. So if you're going through Nebraska and you see a green and yellow sign that says R-U-N-Z-A, I recommend it. The French fries are great too. All right. So uh, you are a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, but you were not always Orthodox Presbyterian. You were not always theologically Reformed. How did that happen? Well, I was raised in the uh, Church of God, Anderson. Indiana. It's a yeah. Tell us about it's that. an Arminian Wesleyan group. Came out of the old Weimarian movement, in the later 19th century. Very concerned about holiness, not doctrinal in the sense that uh, non-creedal, I should say. Didn't believe in church membership. Uh, met a lot of really good people, and my folks, very sincere, godly people, raised us in that faith. It just when I got to college, it did not seem sufficient to help me answer some of the questions that were coming my way, especially in a very, very hostile environment in uh, some of the religion classes. Where was this? That was Anderson College then. It's Anderson University. So it's a school of the denomination, but there were a few profs there not very friendly to evangelical thought. Oh, interesting. And so my junior year, I really, things started to unravel. I'm not sure it was a crisis yet, but it was nearing a crisis. And I talked to a psychology professor who handed me a book, and I said, what questions will this answer and he said all of them. <laughs> and I think he knew where I was. It was by Francis Schaeffer, the God who was there. Oh. And I spent my junior year spring break basically just crying reading this book because it was the first time I'd read somebody who was trying to tackle the hard, big questions. Yeah, thoughtfully, intelligently, you know, whatever criticisms all these years later people may have of Francis Schaeffer, those volumes that he published through InterVarsity were so helpful for generations of college students. I don't even know how I came upon Francis Schaeffer, but I remember reading Francis Schaeffer as a young university student, and it was enormously helpful. Very helpful. And I think behind all of it, too, was something new I had not heard before. And that was what he calls true truth, just the truth of the Christian faith. And that's what I needed to hear. So after college, I went to Labrie two times as a student, then as a helper. So tell the listener what Labrie is, because it probably has not been much in the consciousness of people for a while. Yeah, it's been out of the news, too, for a while. It's uh, kind of an informal community where you go and study. Originally started for those who were We'd call seekers now, I guess, people that were really had questions about the Christian faith. It had different branches, five branches throughout the world, I think, still. And uh, I went to study with Dick Kyes outside of Boston at the Southboro campus, which at the time I thought was the strongest of the five campuses. And you go and you do some work, you help with chores and stuff, but you spend most of your time reading or listening to lectures, and you have opportunities to talk with the helpers there. And there's a lot of people who have come to faith through this organization, and then a lot of people like myself who were raised in the Christian faith, but then really started to stray, have questions. And here was a place where you could do that, where literally any question was encouraged. I should go back, too, and say that was true of my father, who was a true educator, and um, every question was allowed at the table. And in fact, 
when I and all my siblings became Reformed, one time he said kind of despondently, I raised you as Arminians. Where did I go wrong? <laughs> and I said, well, you told us to read our Bibles and two, to ask any question we wanted. And he said, well, that's true. Yeah. And so, but those seeds were planted for the Reformed faith by that psychology professor and then by the works of Francis Schaeffer. And those are the things that eventually germinated to the point where I became very restless after college. And that was part of that journey. The um, Labrie movement sort of was an alternative to some of the communes and things that had developed in the U.S. and elsewhere, in the, particularly in the 60s. So lots of kids in the 60s and 70s who were, as you say, looking for answers could go and, and hang out. So how long were you there? Uh, first time as a student, about three months I would say, wow. and then came back a few years later for probably about six months. And where did you go after Labrie? After a student, I went to Alaska. Okay. I worked on a feedlot after I graduated from college, All right. got some money, went to Labrie, came back, worked some more, and then went to Alaska. And again, in case the listener doesn't quite know, what's a feedlot? Yeah, that's where you raise cattle. We had about 12,000 head of cattle. All right. So yeah, this is kind of an enclosed area, yeah. a large enclosed area, yeah. <laughs> so, as opposed to a pasture where the cattle are just wandering for acres and acres. Now, this is a little more limited. And these are cattle being raised for sale, and that's your dinner or your lunch or in some places your breakfast. Or in the case of my grandfather, all three, <laughs> who was a cattle rancher. So yeah, what's for breakfast? Beef. So you're in Alaska? Yeah. And what are you doing there? Well, I basically went to prove God wrong that I was not called to the pastoral ministry. Oh, interesting. So that was the next thing I wanted to go to. So you're already beginning to wrestle with that. Yeah, but I lost that argument. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Walk us through that, because there are listeners who are wrestling with that exact same thing, and they feel this tug to pastoral ministry. They see the pastor up there, and they think, oh, I think I might like to do that, but I can't do that. Uh, I'm not holy enough, or whatever it is, they're, or I can't leave my job, or whatever they're, they're wrestling with. So walk us through that so they, they can hear your story. Well, I went up originally with the promise of some work in a place to stay through the winter. That's important when you're in Alaska. Yeah, it is. <laughs> a place to stay. And I fell into a church where I knew the pastor because we had a college class together. Uh, he was a bit older and worked with him and got some opportunities to minister and really enjoyed it. And eventually that church called me as an associate pastor. And that's where I started to really get a feel for things and, and enjoy ministry, especially the people. That was always kind of my thing. It was always relational, I guess, is the way I would put it now. But it began to create a thirst, I think, for the type of study and where you could see the fruit of your labors. And at that point, you know, I'm looking at it a very shallow way, very slender way. I didn't even know what studying was, really, to be honest, at that point. It was not a good, not a studious guy in college. I'm shocked. A young man who, who yeah. was distracted <laughs> in college. That never happens. Yeah. And so I think that started to create that sort of energy and, and interest. I went back to the Brie. Then I went back, and instead of going to Wasilla, I moved up to Fairbanks and became the interim pastor of a church. Oh. And so there it was on me. I was all of 23 years old and doing this full-time, and it became pretty apparent I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> and uh, I'm glad you figured yeah, it out. And, yeah. and I remember somebody asking me a question one time, and it dawned on me, I didn't even have any idea where to go for the answer. And so I was bumping into my limitations pretty quickly. I did another interim after that and encountered the same thing. But the other thing, too, is that people were very affirming, especially me as a teacher. And I decided then to go to Gordon-Conwell and went there the fall of 87 as a self-professed Calminian. You know, very frustrated sure. with the Arminian Wesleyan package I was handed 
but definitely did not want to be a Calvinist. Yeah, you knew that couldn't I, be. That'd I did be, not no, want to be one of those no, guys. No, no, of course not. So anyway, <laughs> went to Gordon Conwell with all these questions and having served in three different churches. So just enough experience, I think, to know what the right questions were, but still unsure what the Lord's calling was. And in fact, when I landed at Gordon Conwell, my intent was to get a PhD at a Boston school and teach something in the field of philosophy with a view towards apologetics. But uh, that's not what happened. So what did happen? You graduated from Gordon-Conwell and? Well, what happened there is very significant in that I'd say three things happened. One, those reform seeds planted by Schaefer and his works really started to take hold. The second thing was it was helped significantly by sitting with David Wells, my very first class. And then most significant of all, I would say, is when I walked into that class, I noticed a chair empty next to a young lady I had noticed during the orientation. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Whose name I did not yet know. Yeah. Uh, But in retrospect, she and I swapped notes and realized that during the orientation, we made sure that either one of us was standing in front of the other or next to the other. Oh, funny. And so it began then. Her name was Carol. Ah. uh, Carol Lex, and she is now my wife. But Carol was the first person who I'd met who admitted to uh, holding to the doctrines of grace, reform, faith, who listened so patiently who was not arrogant. I always felt like when I was talking to a Calvinist, they were reaching across the table, patting me on the head, saying, someday you'll grow up, little boy, in your theology. But Carol was not patronizing that way. She was very patient. And I can even show you the place where I slammed my hand down the table and pointed at her and said, I will never believe in infant baptism. (laughs) (laughs) And? And now I baptize babies. (laughs) And taller ones, too. But (laughs) There we go. Yeah, so it, anyway. it happens. So yeah. I, I went there, you know, kind of mixed up. And then in my final year, I really kind of walking into the Reformed faith and then realizing I've got all these holes in my training and my thought, just a, a young babe in the doctrines of grace. And simultaneously, Carol was the one, I think, who really, really opened my eyes in terms of what the Lord had called me to. Because when I mentioned to her one time, I hope she'll forgive me my mentioning this, that I wanted to be a professor. She said, well, Craig, you're not brilliant. <laughs> it was one of those. This is why the Lord gives us why yes. to keep us connected to reality. No, my wife does this for me all the time. What were you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was really hard to hear, though. And I would never have said I thought I was brilliant, but I thought I wasn't. I thought it was above average, you know. <laughs> yeah, you, you were from Lake Wobegon. Yeah, exactly. All the children are above it. Well, not long uh, before I married, Mrs. Clark, I had a beard, and she'd only known me with a beard. And I said, you know, I sh- should probably show you my whole face just in case you decide that, no, I don't want that. And so I shaved off the beard, and she looked at me, and she said, grow it back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's good that the Lord gives us our wives to who uh, keep us grounded. So how did you end up in the Orthodox Presbyterian yeah. Church? Well, I should say, too, I should fill out that last story that, yeah. that Carol said, Craig, you cannot handle being cooped up in a study all day. You need to be around people. God's yeah. obviously called you to be a pastor. But swimming in this new ocean of the doctrines of grace, I felt like I really need to shore up loose ends. And there's a longer version of this, but I ended up at but Westminster basically through a phone call by Oz Guinness. He came to campus, and I was appointed as his TA, having my experience in Labrie, and he's, of course, an old Labrie sure. hand. And so he made a phone call to Westminster, and that actually cut through all the red tape. There's a lot of things I didn't have to do that guys that applied did, and I got into their PhD program. And I went there not intending to gain a degree to teach, but something that would help shore up all these loose ends, become acquainted with the Reformed faith, so I'd be a a better equipped pastor. And my very first semester, I had theology of John Owen with Sinclair Ferguson with only five other students, theology of Calvin, 
Historical Theology 1, and I was just drinking it in. It was incredible to me, and I count it such a privilege to have sat in those classes to get access to this, you know, primary source material that fed so directly into the ministry. And it just sort of supercharged me for walking into a pulpit, preaching from the Word of God, but also, you know, bringing to bear, in terms of discipleship, all this material. Yeah, the riches of the Reformed tradition. I mean, just beautiful. John Owen is difficult to read, but it's worth it. Always worth it. My advice is to read him in small bits and meditate on it. Which is probably how he wrote that stuff. Uh, He was very diligent. Uh, It's very compact writing. And so, you know, in an age when we're used to, you know, sort of blowing through uh, documents on the web and tweets and texts and emails and things, Owen is a completely different kind of literature, Mm. very carefully constructed and meant to be read thoughtfully and uh, carefully. Going back to David Wells, I remember reading, uh, you know, Where in the World is the Church, that series that he began, and I was doing my doctoral work. Mm. I was trying to catch up with what is going on in evangelicalism coming out of a, you know, confessional, conservative, reformed pastorate, and really, frankly, not paying much attention to what was going on, busy taking care of my people. And so Wells was enormously helpful. Mm. So I'm very grateful for him, but also Sinclair. So those are great foundations. So the tradition really did feed you and help get you grounded. Very much so. And then walking into a pulpit, my wife and I were in the PCA at the time. We joined the PCA church when we were in New England, drove up to New Hampshire every Sunday to hear T.D. David Gordon preached to us and ministered to us. And then so we went to Philadelphia. The pulpit opened across the street from Westminster Seminary, and Daryl Hart, who was attending there, said, you should apply. And I said, why would I do that? (laughs) (laughs) I'm very happy in the PCA. But I went and preached there. I think it was February 1995. It was life-changing. They were listening. I'd never experienced anything like that. To be in a room where these people were obviously hungry and came with the expectation that you would do one thing and just open that book and preach. It really shifted everything. Hmm. It was a very arduous candidating process, actually. But they stuck with me, uh, reached to the bottom of the barrel and got a licentiate <laughs> out of the PCA, which really bothers some people in the church. And I understand why. They were so patient, and it was such a good church. And leaving there was very painful because we had such a good thing going. And then 12 years later... Just in this last, you know, six months, I found myself going through the same thing all over again, a church that was so lovely. And when you do fall in love with your congregation and you suspect something similar is happening in a mutual way, you just, what happens on a Sunday is so beautiful in that you fall in with your people. They really are, can hear you, even in the words you don't say, or even when you misspeak. They know what you meant. Mm. There's that trust and there's, there's a, that love. There's a tremendous bond that's there. And it's very, very precious Not every pastor gets it, and I got it twice, and I count myself very privileged. And that's what made the decision coming to Westminster, without meaning to insult. What made it so hard was, why would I leave this? This makes no sense to leave this. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals, since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced, historically, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Until now. R.C. Sproul. For Westminster Seminary, California. This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically reject it. But that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain 
the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary, California. WSCAL.edu. 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. That was the next question I was going to ask. I mean, obviously, leaving Glenside, OPC, to go to Bethel in Wheaton, that was obviously very difficult. And now here you've had these wonderful 12 years in Wheaton, and you're going through the same process. So, I'm sure the listener's asking this question, Craig, why? What on earth possessed you to, in a sense, break up this marvelous relationship you have with the congregation and move to Escondido to teach at Westminster Seminary, California? I think, let me just jump to the end of the story and say, when it becomes apparent to you that the Lord wants you to do something, then it suddenly becomes very simple. And the only word that comes to mind is obedience. Mm. And so then nothing else matters. There are things that complicate the decision, like moving away from family, from all of our children, except for one who's out here. That was hard. Again, living a good situation, it makes no sense on one level to leave that. But when it becomes clear, and it eventually became clear, in a gradual way, where I gained more and more peace, and Carol too, that this is what we need to do. And it made sense from the standpoint of a culmination of using experience and somebody who's thought about the doctrine of the church and things pertaining to the church and to help to bring those to bear upon training men in the future. That does make sense. And especially having invested a lot of time in previous interns and many of them and really enjoying that and seeing good fruit come from that too. It didn't seem like a crazy idea to come and kind of do that on a broader level Maybe not the same depth, maybe with a few that can happen, but on a wider level, that didn't seem crazy. And I've enjoyed being in the seminary class before. It's not something I've yearned for for a long time in terms of full time. But now, with it coming about, it seemed like this is a good stewardship. And so with those thoughts, and then also, I, you know, just to, and I'm not trying to butter anybody up here, but uh, the faculty here, the idea of working alongside some of the men here who I really respect, and some of them I would consider good friends, they may not say the same, but I consider good friends was very compelling as well. You um, have thought when you were, you had thought when you were younger that you might like to be a professor. Right. So that's interesting. It's a sort of thread that has run through your career. You sort of set it aside. Yes. Very happily pastoring, very committed to your congregations. I take it that you weren't sort of thinking in the back of your mind, oh, I, I still think I'd like to be a prof. So am I right? Or I how, think that's how? fair. Maybe some people don't know me so well, I'd say that this is something I always wanted. But yeah, early on you do. I mean, most seminary graduates are thinking it perhaps. I think a majority of them are. But once you start to taste of the ministry, it can be very, very difficult. But the rewards, the blessings. That might be hard for people to understand, but I understand what you're saying. When I came to SEM, I was thinking about going into academics. I was thinking about classics or history, but I did a very difficult internship in Bakersfield. People were terrific, but it was a difficult situation for a variety of reasons. But coming out of that internship, I knew what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. I knew what I had to do that I had to go teach the Word of God, love God's people, administer the sacraments, preach, visit. I wanted to do that, and I very happily did that for six years until the Lord called me elsewhere and was prepared even after grad school to go back and do that. And frankly, I'm still prepared hmm. if the Lord ever called, but here I am. Once you get in the midst of that, 
you know, loving God's people and seeing them respond, something happens. Years ago, there was a volume, probably 60, 70 years ago, The Romance of the Ministry. And I always thought that was an odd title. And I still think it is in some ways. But I think I understand more probably what the author was suggesting than I did 40 years ago. Yeah, I think it's important to cast aside those that are too idealistic in their vision, but also those who are too cynical in their vision. You know, I'm struck by 1 Corinthians 13, that love hopes and believes all things, but it also bears and endures all things. So uh, Dick Kies is the one who taught me this, that cynicism is a sin. Yeah. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer taught me in, um, in Life Together, idealism is dangerous. And so proper vision of the church says there's a tremendous love. There is a romance in the ministry, and the benefits are just unequaled. The way you get to enter into a family's life, especially in crises, to just gain trust that then you shelter and you guard as something so precious for people to trust you at the level that they do is such a privileged thing. To welcome you into their families, to walk with them through the baptism of a child and perhaps later to help that child confess her faith in Christ and be able to stand before a congregation and point to the baptismal font and say, this child on this date was over there in the arms of their pastor being baptized and all of us praying together that we would hope this child would confess her faith. And here they are today. Yeah. And it's a teary, yeah. beautiful thing. Yeah. Seeing the promises come to fruition. Yeah. And then yeah. later, perhaps to stand in front of that child with their spouse as they make vows to one another, and to walk through all those things, and then through death. You know, and uh, this last year at Bethel, we had three deaths that were very difficult, but there are things that bring the congregation together, and you as a pastor, for a family to grab you by the hand and just say thank you. Or when you walk into a hospital room, and when that person turns to the nurse and says, that's my pastor— it's one of the most endearing moments that you have yeah. uh, together. So those are the beautiful things. And it can be really hard. You know, you are so thankful for low-maintenance church members. <laughs> but, you know, I just I was reading again, you know, going after that stray lamb, leaving the 99, and yeah. just how often a pastor walks through that life where here I am again with this person and seeing such little fruit sometimes coming from those hours. And yet— no, this is the way of the master shepherd, and this is what I'm called to do. And I think, you know, to bring some of those things into the classroom and not just say, well, here's how I did it, but to be able to say, okay, here are three ways I did it, and they were all terrible mistakes. You <laughs> yeah, know, Don't do what I did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And here's the theory behind it, right? There's our right. practice of ministry, obviously comes out of experience and wisdom, but it also rests to some degree on a theory that we've worked out from Scripture and in dialogue with the church. As you were talking, it occurs to me, having grown up to some degree in central and western Nebraska, you're actually, in that way, well prepared for pastoral ministry, right? Because the farmer has to plant, and he has to tend, and he has to pray, right? He ought to, and he has to wait. Exactly. And there's a lot in the farmer's life that's out of his control, like rain. <laughs> Might be right now they've got flooding in Kearney and they've got they've had a bunch of rain in North Platte. So, you know, that's out of their control. They're probably not happy about all that rain just now. And so sometimes you don't have enough and sometimes you have too much and you just have to um, trust the Lord and deal with that. And you have to wait on his providence to bring to fruit all of the planting that you did. So Sunday by Sunday, you stand in the pulpit and you are planting and trusting in the Spirit. And the joy of pointing people to Christ, that's hard to articulate. The joy of having the privilege of uh, working in the Scriptures all week 
and then uh, announcing the gospel, announcing the law, and pointing people to Jesus week by week. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Well, that is a great privilege. And in Bethel, about half our church was Dutch, you know, mostly former CRC, and the other half were evangelicals. And some would come to our church. One person came and visited Actually, this person came from a Dutch church, and visiting, he turned to the person next to him and said, are you guys having an evangelistic campaign? And he said, no. He says, wait, you're saying this is typical? Yes. And he said, I have not heard the gospel actually yeah. you know, stated clearly in probably 10, 15 years. Mm. But the joy of bringing— It's tragic. It is, but it's very typical. And then the evangelicals that come to our church are just not used to hearing grace, you know, or they hear a cheap grace. And so that privilege of bringing Christ to them and them to Christ on a weekly basis, and especially in thinking of Colossians 1 and 2, how that ends, and where Paul is painting Christ as he is sufficient. You don't need anything else. It's it's all here. The fullness of God is in him bodily. And you don't need all these rules that these people are saying you need and all this extra stuff. And you don't need to worship angels here. You have the head of heaven. It's just a beautiful picture of why we bring people to Christ. Here is not just the only perfect ministry that ever was on this earth, but here is a ministry that continues. And in his intercession and in his, you know, pouring the Spirit upon his people, that his work really is sufficient, not just for justification, but for sanctification. And he walks with you still. He loves you still. And to bring that to people on a weekly basis is such a privilege. But on the other hand, it's not hard for the very simple reason I, as one who struggles with infirmities, as Hebrews says, I sympathize with their weaknesses. And I'm just preaching to my own heart. That's one of the reasons I think Owen is so good, like mortification of sin. Yeah. It's like you read this and think, wow, he really gets it. You have the sense he's ministering to his own heart and as a minister of the gospel to do that. Or, you know, when I would lead people of God in confession of sin, that was easy. But it was yeah. a way of identifying with him and saying, look, I'm walking through this with you. I'm walking side by side with you. But then as a role as a minister to bring them that transcendent word, you know, that word from outside that comes very intrusively upon this naturalistic world, shatters its lies and says, look, cling to the truth that's found in Christ. This will set you free. And everything this world says is nonsense. This is the true wisdom of God. It's the power of God. To do that on a weekly basis is, now I'm talking myself out of my current job. <laughs> <laughs> well, but you get now, as a professor of practical theology, yes. to lead young men and some not-so-young men into that vocation, yeah. which is itself a great privilege. Yeah. And I look back to, I think of the influence of, of my mentors and just the way— and you know what I mean when I say this, just sitting at the feet, as it were, of Meredith Klein to hear him pray mm-hmm. without him saying another word was worth my whole Gordon-Conwell tuition yeah. expense. And then to, at times, not be able to take any more notes in Theology of the Sacraments, because as Sinclair Ferguson is talking, I'm realizing just this great privilege yeah. that I have. It becomes doxological, right? You well, start breaking out in, into praise. It is. And you start to realize what Paul means by doctrine, especially in the pastoral epistles, where he talks about doctrine according to godliness, mm-hmm. that the doctrine we're interested in is that which leads us into holiness, that which leads us into doxology, as you said. This is what we mean by sound or healthy doctrine. Yeah. That's what we're interested in. And I think this school... Now, it sounds like I'm, I'm plugging the school, but I, I, I really mean it. That's okay. That's, that's one of the reasons we're here. It's that integrated understanding and why the church is so, so important. Uh, this institution, this context of grace that Christ has established, where sinners can come and hear this and understand that theology 
God forbid, theology is never merely theoretical. That theology should bring you to your knees. Theology should break you. And then it should build you up. And we want a ministry that sees that integration, which is a terrible institutional word, but to seize this this marriage between faith and life. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, you got to watch both these things if you want to save yourself and those who hear you. And it's significant that he, I don't want to preach here, but but to save yourself. And to me, that's the, the last thread, too, is that a minister never feeds his people with something he's not tasted himself. As John Owen says, lest he is giving them poison and doesn't know it. But just the dangers of hypocrisy and becoming a Pharisee, which is only a half step away at all times. My great fear for myself and what I hope to instill and maybe to inoculate our graduates is that the man is the message. It's coming through you. And there's bits and pieces of you coming out that you don't even realize because the mouth is (laughs) the ambassador of the heart. But you need to pay attention. You need to watch and pray. You need to be godly. And this is part of this integrated picture. And these are the things that encourage me about coming here and why I do want to be involved in a classroom and to be a part of that. I think I can provide some hope for the plotters or the guys that maybe aren't the special (laughs) students because I've never been accused of being the sharpest blade in the drawer. But if you study and you think upon things, and if you really care for your people, there's so much good that I think you can do. Yeah. Carl Curtis, I think, or Roman Rusco, one of the two Nebraska senators back in the 60s, President Nixon had nominated somebody for the bench. I don't remember who it was. And he was being criticized. And one of the senators said, well, mediocre people need representation, too. So <laughs> I say that as you a go. I kid like who it. graduated 250th out of 500 in my high school. So <laughs> I was the quintessence of mediocrity. Well, you really answered the question. I think the listener can hear the passion of your heart for ministry, for preaching, and for transmitting that to seminary students. So we are excited to have you here. I know the students are. I know we were all blessed to have you here lecturing to us not long ago. And uh, we look forward to a long and fruitful ministry here at Westminster Seminary in California. So welcome, Craig. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.